Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. If we've yet to meet, my name is Stephen Jones. I'm the Salt Company director here, and we are so grateful that you are with us this morning. So today is a big day in the Jones household. Very, very important day. It is Isla's fourth birthday. Let's go. Party central this afternoon. Yeah, we can cheer for that. Pink balloons everywhere, streamers, cupcakes are ready to go, chili in the crock pot. We have a huge party for Isla coming up, which is a ton of fun. So I remember one of my favorite stories of Isla is actually kind of our first story of Isla. Four years, nine months ago, we had just found out that Natalie was pregnant and expecting, and we began making the plans of how are we going to announce that we're expecting to our families, to our friends, what is the way we're going to announce this? So we had a family vacation scheduled the week after we found out Isla was born, and so we started dreaming, how are we going to do this? We're going to be on vacation with our family. We could go to this pier and set up lights and make it just Pinterest ready to go. Like, this is going to be an awesome, awesome announcement. Well, we show up to this vacation spot, and it was not a vacation spot. We'd never been to this place, and sometimes those sorts of places work out great. This was the opposite when it worked out terrible. Uh, Freeport, Texas. It is as great as that word sounds, Freeport. It is an oil rigging community, industrial. It's not a vacation spot. I'm sure there are nice people there, but not somewhere where you want to go to vacation. So we show up in Freeport at this kind of rundown house, and we're in it, and a day in, Natalie's morning sickness just hits her like a brick wall. She is throwing up everywhere, literally. She is in bed. She can't get out of bed. And so all of our dreams of this amazing Pinterest, beautiful baby announcement are going out the window or down the toilet with like all of her puke and everything. So it's just nastiness. We're like, there's nothing going to be pretty picture worthy about this. So we get to a point where we're like, all right, we just need to tell people because I am starting to get accused of like being an idiot husband. I made Natalie some soup, went downstairs, started eating it when she didn't want to eat it. My grandma's like, well, that's smart. You're going to get what she has. I don't think so, grandma. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) Bowls of soup, don't do that. So we're like, we just need to tell people. So we are in the back of my parents' van in a Wendy's parking lot at 9 p.m. at night. And I go, hey, everyone. Natalie's pregnant, to which everyone just looked at me like, you are lying, that's a joke, not real. Then they looked at Natalie's, Natalie's like, yeah, it's real. And they're like, oh, oh my goodness, and everybody freaked out, they lost their minds, my brother are jumping out of the van, running through the parking lot of Wendy's, celebrating, not at all how we thought we would announce this incredible moment in our lives, nothing Pinterest worthy about that. But at the end of the day, An announcement like having a baby, it doesn't really matter how or where. At the end of the day, the most important thing is that we got to share that with our parents. We got to tell our parents, our family, that we were expecting. How and where didn't matter as much as the fact that we got to be the ones to share that. Who mattered more than how and where. And that happens all sorts, in all sorts of ways. When we have a big event, a significant thing that happens in our life or in our world, who shares that announcement matters tremendously. Who gets the breaking news? Who gets to tell the world first matters a lot. We don't just want anyone to announce the Super Bowl. We want Tony Romo. Let's go, Tony Romo. We don't want Johnny Manziel. We want the GOAT, not really, but Tony Romo. It matters who announces significant events. 
This morning, we are going to look at the most significant event in human history, an extraordinary event that takes place that changes the course of not just human history, but all of eternity. It's the resurrection of Christ, an extraordinary event. But in the midst of this, we are going to see a shocking announcement. Someone that we would never have expected making the announcement of the resurrection. So that's what we're doing this morning, working through John 20, 1 through 18. An extraordinary event, an unexpected announcer. Extraordinary event, unexpected announcer. So if you got a Bible, John 20 is where we're going to be at. I don't know if it was planned. I'm sure Jake did plan it to have Mary Sennert read as we read that passage with Mary Magdalene in there. But John 20 is where we're going to be at this morning. So first, the extraordinary event, verses 1 through 10. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. At this point, several days have passed. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, so it is now Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb as early as she can. Verse 2, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. We'll see later that the disciple that Jesus loved was John, who wrote this gospel. So Mary runs to Peter and John and tells them, Jesus is missing. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. And so Peter and John go on a foot race. Verse 3, at that, at that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Probably the most important verse that John ever wrote in his mind. I outran Peter. That's right. I'm going to put that in scripture, which is just hilarious that the Holy Spirit literally inspired John. Like, yeah, you better let the world know that you're faster than Peter. I have three brothers, and I guarantee that if any one of us was holy enough to write scripture, we would be writing like, yeah, I won that competition. Just remember that. Natalie was shocked the first Thanksgiving that she went to, and we all got on the scale one by one. We're a household of wrestlers from Southeast Polk. One of the things wrestlers do is we weigh ourselves continuously. It's just a weird thing. We just want to know. She's like, what are you guys doing? And then was really shocked when we just started wrestling each other randomly. That happens all the time. But you know that us brothers, we would write in there who won every competition we could write in. I, as my mom tells me, you were blessed with intelligence, Stephen. <laughs> Kindness. Ah, mom, I wanted strength, brute power. <laughs> my brother Sam tech followed me in the front of all Southeast Polk for a wrestle-off. It was pretty embarrassing. They are more athletically inclined than I am. It's okay. I've got three kids and a wife. All right, so John beats Peter to the tomb. There's things about me that I like, and you should appreciate too, people. All my insecurities just being exposed on stage this morning for us all. Peter loses the race, verse 5. Stooping down, this is John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, and he saw linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. 
So they get to the tomb, they, they stoop in, they look. Peter goes in first, and they begin to make these observations, seeing the facts of the situation. Linen cloths folded. These aren't clothes, these are burial cloths that were wrapped on Jesus, the, the one that would go around the head, the one that would go around the body. They're, they're put in place. They're, there's an orderliness about this tomb, kind of bizarre for an empty tomb. And John looks at all of this in verse 8. Here's what happens. The other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, he had to put that in one more time, then also went in, saw and believed. John walks in, he sees what Peter has now seen, and he believes. He looks at the facts of the situation, and it moves him to a place of belief. Now, what was he believing? He was believing that Jesus Christ truly did rise from the dead. And in so doing so, proved to the world that he was the son of God, that he had secured for the world salvation. That is what the resurrection of Christ proved. You see, there's a lot of other people or several other people who had died and then rose again. Think of Lazarus. But there was something unique about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God, claiming that his death would secure salvation. And when he rose from the dead, unlike any other resurrection story, that proved that he truly was the son of God and had secured the salvation for all people. That's the significance of the resurrection. And when the, the disciple John sees the facts of this, it moves him to believe. It moves him to believe that Jesus really was the son of God who our salvation is found in. Now, verse 9 is kind of bizarre. What, how do we make sense of that? Look what it says. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What John is saying is, hey, I didn't know how all the dots of scripture had connected yet. I didn't understand how the Old Testament pointed to the reality that the Messiah needed to die and rise again. But because I've seen the facts, I believed. So they see this scene, and in verse 10, the disciples returned to the place they were staying. The disciples saw and they believed. And at this, we might start be like begin to think, like, man, wouldn't it be nice? Like sometimes I just wish that I could be there, that I, like John, could have saw firsthand for myself the facts of the resurrection. Then maybe it would be easier for me to believe, or maybe then it would be easier for me to have confidence that Jesus really was the Son of God and that He secured salvation for us. Here's two things to consider. First, there were a lot of people who saw the facts of the resurrection. There's a lot of people that saw firsthand what Peter and John saw. A lot of people that saw firsthand the miracles of Jesus, and yet they rejected him. So maybe you would, but maybe you wouldn't. Just because people saw firsthand Jesus and everything about his life didn't guarantee that they accepted him, believed in him, or any more confident than necessarily you are. But here's the second consideration there actually might be more facts that you can analyze than you are aware of. That even you have access to some facts that the disciples, they themselves didn't have when it comes to assessing the validity of the resurrection. So here's what I want to do. I want to take five minutes to do a deep dive a deep dive on how we can have confidence in the evidence of the resurrection. We're just going to go all the way in. It's going to be five minutes of hold your breath. We're going to sink to the bottom, and at some point we'll come back up for air. But that's what we're going to do for five minutes. And before we go into it, a big asterisk. These next five minutes are just a starting place to help you begin to think through the evidence of the resurrection. There's no way I can make a comprehensive argument today on all the things that go into why we can have confidence in the resurrection, but here is a starting place. 
So I really appreciate the argument put forth by William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a New Testament scholar, a philosopher, and here's the argument in his book, A Reasonable Faith, that he puts forward. So he says, around the resurrection, there are three undeniable facts, three facts that can be proven through Scripture and even with extra-biblical evidence, three facts that almost all of the academic world would accept as, yeah, these are three factual things. And any explanation of the resurrection must take into account these three facts. So the three facts are this. There was an empty tomb. There were people who claimed to have post-resurrection encounters with Jesus. And Christianity started. Three simple facts. The tomb was empty. People claimed to have encounters with Jesus after his resurrection. And Christianity started. So what's the significance of each of those? The tomb was empty. Well, first, if... If the tomb wasn't empty, everything about Christianity would have no ability to get started. You could just simply go to the tomb and see that it was empty. Nobody disagreed in the first century. Nobody disagrees now. The tomb was empty. Something happened to Jesus' body. That's fact one. Fact two, people claimed to have post-resurrection encounters with Jesus. In a public document written 15 years after the resurrection... Paul writes to a church in Corinth, a public document that would be copied numerous times, and he lists multiple individuals and groups that encountered Jesus. Up to 500 people, he claimed in this document that was only written 15 years later, encountered Jesus after his resurrection. And what he's doing, travel at that time in the Roman Empire was very feasible, it was very accessible. And, and putting this out in this public document, he's saying, if you want to know whether or not these people were lying or fabricating this story, just go ask them yourself. So that doesn't necessarily prove that it happened, but it proved that there were people that claimed they had an encounter with Jesus. Here's the third fact, Christianity started. Now you're like, okay, that it seems like the most simple fact out there. Well, yes, it is. Before Jesus, there's no Christianity. After Jesus, there was Christianity. But here's the significance of that. Any explanation of the resurrection has to give an explanation that has the power and scope to help us feasibly conclude that Christianity started, which entered into a worldview that had no uh, conception of a bodily resurrection. So at the time of the first century, there was no major worldview that would have had a category for a bodily resurrection. So what event could have taken place outside of Jesus' resurrection that would lead to this explosive new worldview that came onto the scene virtually overnight in a historical sense, where thousands of people from multiple worldviews would come to embrace this? So, for example, in the Jewish worldview, they believed in a resurrection at the end of, the at end of time, but they had no category for a singular bodily resurrection in the middle of time, let alone that that person who would rise from the dead would be the Son of God. They had no category for a triune God, a Messiah that would die and rise again. So for them to embrace Christianity, they would have to embrace a completely new worldview that went against the key doctrines of the Jewish faith. For the Greeks, in their mythology, they saw the physical world and the body as evil. And therefore, they would have no concept of someone dying, being set free from their body, only to rise again bodily. They would, it would make no sense to them or their worldview. They did have some mythological gods that were more agricultural gods that would follow the seasons and would go through a, a, a reincarnation of sorts that kind of resembled a resurrection, but nothing like the resurrection that the New Testament claims. 
So for both the Jews and for the Greeks, they would have had no concept, no category for a resurrection described like we have in our New Testament. It would have completely broken down all of their preconceived notions. So whatever explanation, whatever alternative explanation of the resurrection events you want to put forward, it has to have the explanatory power and scope to account for all three facts. An empty tomb, the claims of eyewitness accounts, and the movement of Christianity starting. And the reality is of all the alternative explanations, they might be able to give a feasible explanation for one, maybe two of the facts, but there is yet to be an alternative explanation that adequately accounts for all three of the facts. For example, the the disciples stole the body and fabricated the story. Maybe that could be a feasible explanation. Well, the difficulty with that explanation is first, the disciples, there was too much counterproductive material in our New Testaments for that to be feasible. Imagine you were the disciples trying to write up this new religion. You just saw your leader die and you think, you know what, we're going to continue. We loved him. We want to continue the spirit of Christianity. Let's make up this new religion. Why on earth would you time and time again make yourself look so foolish, so insecure, lack so much confidence, and even on the most important night of your leader's life, you all abandoned him? That would be so counterproductive for you trying to establish leadership and power in this new movement. Second counterproductive piece, the fact that you would have women be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, why is that significant? Well, in the Roman Empire, a woman's testimony was not even permissible in the court of law because of their low view of men and women. And so if you are fabricating a story, you would never have someone whose testimony wouldn't be permissible in the court of law to be the people that have the the eyewitness access to the evidence itself. In fact, one of the atheists that in the second century that would go to refute Christianity, his key argument was the fact that women saw Jesus first. He said, how can we believe this religion when women were the first witnesses? Too much counterproductive material. The second argument against the disciples stealing the body and fabricating this story would be that there is little to no motivation for them to do it. Christianity wouldn't be a major world religion until Constantine in the fourth century. And so for the next 300 years, there was little to no benefit of associating with Christianity. It was a small, marginalized religion with no power, no voice in the community. The vast majority of the disciples were executed for their faith. Why would they go to fabricate this movement? Here's the thing. Just because someone dies for a religion doesn't prove that it is true. But if someone does die for a religion, what does it prove? It proves that they themselves believed it was true. There's a lot of people that will die for Islam or Buddhism or whatever. That doesn't prove those religions are true. What it proves is they themselves believed it was true. If you have the main key leaders dying for this movement, dying for this faith, What it proves is they themselves believed it was true. At some point in the midst of looking at all of the limited benefits to being a Christian, one of the leaders would have caved, said, this is false. This isn't true. Too much counterproductive material, too little motivation for that uh, explanation to be plausible. Well, you might say, well, maybe there's group hallucinations. Well, you would be claiming that 
the greatest psychological phenomenon of all time happened because in multiple places at multiple times to over 500 people, they would have to have a group hallucination. Seems unlikely. We could go on. We could point out that James, Jesus' own brother for his entire life, opposed him, but what would cause him to accept that Jesus was the Son of God and write our epistle, James? There's so much more to be said, but all that to say, whatever your explanation is, it has to account for those three facts. And so far, the only plausible explanation that has the explanatory power and scope to account for all three is the one reported in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But here's the deal. Even if you saw all the facts, there's still a real possibility that you would say, I just can't believe this. I just can't believe that Jesus could rise from the dead. Here's one of the things that I think we do often. We have a, what we would call chronological snobbery, where we think to ourselves, oh, those people back then, 2,000 years ago, this sort of thing was plausible to them. They were more open to these sorts of ideas. No, they weren't. This was just as unbelievable, just as difficult for these people to accept as it is for us today. Maybe for different reasons, but it was no more plausible to them than it is to us. And if we start with God, if we believe that there is a God who could create everything and that the miracle of creation could happen, then couldn't that same God perform the miracle of the resurrection? Absolutely he could. These disciples saw and they believed. They saw the evidence of the resurrection and they believed that Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection, truly was the Son of God and truly had secured our salvation, defeated death for all time. Now that is an extraordinary event. That is an extraordinary and important event that happens. The greatest event in human history. Now if you had an event of that magnitude, who would you want to announce it first? Think about how critical we are of the announcers on the Oscars. Like, how did that person get to announce this? We're coming into the holiday season where Ryan Seacrest announces everything. How? What has he done in life? American Idol? Like, he's just handed yellow sh sheets of paper to people. We're very critical on who gets to announce things based on how important something is. Again, we don't want Johnny Manziel announcing the Super Bowl. You weren't good at football, and you made some big mistakes, man. You don't deserve it. The level of importance of an event requires that who announces it be carefully thought through. If you told me you were pregnant today and that I was the first to know, you would be so mad if I called your mom. Why? Because who announces is incredibly important. So who would you pick to announce this kind of news? Who would you pick to announce this incredible event? Well, look who Jesus chooses. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and, other, and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. So it seems that Mary must have followed along John and Peter. Maybe she beat both and John failed to mention that. Who knows? But she goes back to the tomb and she's sitting there crying, just contemplating the death of Jesus. And now the fact that the body is gone and at this point no one knows where it is. 
Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Mary's in the garden. She goes in, she looks in the tomb for herself, and what does she see? She doesn't just see folded linen cloths. She sees two angels sitting there. She begins to ask, where is Jesus? And then turning around, she has this encounter with Jesus. Now, it's kind of bizarre. Why doesn't she recognize him at first? Well, there's a couple explanations given. One could be that Jesus in his glorified state, she just didn't recognize him at first. Another explanation that's very feasible is that God was actually veiling her eyes from recognizing it was Jesus until he said her name. But regardless, something happened that prevented her from seeing. But don't miss the significance of what Jesus is trying to show us in this moment. Mary didn't recognize him until he said her name. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What is the significance of Mary recognizing him when he says her name? What Jesus is showing us in this passage is as important as the facts of the resurrection are, as important as it is to consider the evidence carefully, even more important is recognizing the relationship Jesus is calling you to. It's not just a set of facts Jesus is trying to show you. It's a relationship. By calling Mary by her name, he is saying more important than just the facts of the resurrection is the call that I have on your life to be in relationship with me. Jesus is not just asking you to consider the evidence this morning, but he is calling your name to recognize the relationship he desires with you. And so at this, Mary must have just given him the biggest bear hug of all time. Look at verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that, I've ascend- that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. At first, we're like, Jesus, give her a break. She just watched you die. She thought you were dead. She thought your body was stolen. And now she found out that you're here. Let her hug you. But there's something more going on. Most likely, verse 17 is a reference to the fact that Jesus must ascend and leave so that we can receive the Spirit. And he's saying, don't cling to me in this kind of permanent way, but instead allow me to ascend so that the Spirit can come to you. And so at that, Mary leaves and look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. She announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Think about that. She is the one who is selected to make this grand announcement. She is the one who gets to the the tomb first. Now, why is this shocking? Right? I've been saying who makes the announcement matters a lot. Well, why would it be so unlikely for Mary to be picked? Well, if you know Mary's backstory, you would know that at one point she was possessed by seven demons. And when Jesus found her, most likely no later than three years before this moment, she was possessed by these seven demons, was isolated and an outcast in society, had no business being a part of the religious community. She was in an incredibly dark place, alone and isolated in her affliction. 
And if someone told you a couple years ago they were plagued by seven demons, what would you think of them? What would be the things you'd begin to assume? Again, it's so easy for us in our time of day to think of these stories like, oh yeah, I'm sure there's just a lot of people possessed by demons and that was common and here she is and she's healed. No, she would be just as bizarre to them as if someone who was possessed by seven demons walked into this room to us. Imagine they are your babysitter that night. Oh yeah, I was possessed by seven demons last year. You'd probably say, you know what? I just got sick. I'm not going on this date night anymore. You can go home. She was an outcast. She was isolated. She was in a dark, incredibly lonely place. And in in society, she was one of the lowest of the lows. Who announces an event matters. And this is the most important event in human history. When God defeats death, God who created the world, who promised to Abraham after the fall of humanity that he would bring his son into the world to save it. For thousands of years, carefully orchestrated every event in human history to bring Jesus into the world at the perfect time. He lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and who, after thousands of years waiting in this promise, gets to announce the resurrection first? Mary. Mary Magdalene. It's extraordinary. It's shocking. Why? Why was Mary chosen? It'd be so that you and I know that the kingdom of Jesus isn't based on merit, importance, or significance, but is based on mercy. Mary's name wasn't called by Jesus because she was great. It was because Jesus is merciful. Mary was given a ministry of announcing Not because she was skilled or gifted or deserved it, but because of mercy. Jesus used the most unlikely, Jesus uses the most unlikely of people to announce the greatest moment in human history so that you and I would know that we have a place with Jesus, regardless of how broken, lost, and afflicted we are. And that place isn't based on you, but is based on Him. Jesus is calling your name. He's calling you to, yes, look at the facts, but more importantly, to see the relationship that the facts point you to. And as you see Jesus, to embrace a ministry of announcing. That is really what Jesus entrusted to each of us. Super simple, a ministry of announcing. To be an announcer. What will Tony Romo do this afternoon when he announces? Well, he's going to help people See what is being accomplished on the field that they would have missed had he not helped them see it. What do we do as announcers? We help people see what was accomplished in the resurrection and see things that they may have missed had we not been faithful to point it out. We have a very simple but a very significant ministry, a ministry of announcing Verse 18 is now true for us. If it was true of Mary Magdalene, who received that ministry based on the mercy of Jesus, it is true for every single one of us. Imagine what we maybe would have concluded had Peter been the one to announce first. Someone who would go on to preach great sermons, to see thousands of people saved when he preaches. Well, we might think, okay, this ministry of announcing the resurrection, well, maybe that's just for gifted or skilled people or someone who would have a platform like this stage. 
but not for someone like me. But what did Jesus blow up in our minds when he chose Mary? This ministry of announcing is for everyone who is called by my name to turn around after they hear their name spoken by me and to announce to the world that Jesus Christ has risen, that I have seen the Lord. Every single one of us first experience a gospel call. That's the first call in your life. The call where Jesus looked at you, said your name, and drew you into relationship with himself. But the second call is a call to ministry, a call to the ministry of announcing, to be a witness of the resurrection. There is a third call, the vocational call, that you would use the unique gifts and abilities that God has given you to build the church and love your neighbor. But those are the three calls, the gospel call, the ministry call, and the vocational call in your life. And here's the question this morning. How have you neglected your ministry of announcing? Who are the people that God has put around you that he has said, hey, I want you to point out to them the things that I have accomplished in the resurrection that they otherwise might have missed if you didn't announce it? Why have you neglected? Have you thought, man, I'm just not skilled enough. I'm just not deserving enough. I'm not just, I'm not worthy enough to talk about this stuff. He chose Mary, not because she was skilled, not because she was great, but because she was broken and didn't deserve it, he chose her. Not based on who she was, but on his mercy. The call to announce is simple. I have seen the Lord, yet it's significant. Now, how is it that Jesus' kingdom can operate like this? How is it that he can call us, not based on who we are, but on his mercy? How is it that he can use us, again, not based on our skill, but on his mercy? How is it that we can have confidence that his mercy is more powerful than our brokenness? Well, John is extremely careful in recording details in his gospel. Outside of maybe the foot race comment, everything else in his gospel was carefully recorded. And there's an interesting clue back in verse 11 and 12. Look back there. Mary is stooping in. Here's what she sees. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And what did she see? Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. So Mary looks in, she sees these angels. Now, why does John take the time to point out all these details about these angels? Right? He doesn't just say, hey, there are two angels and they have a conversation. No, he says, there's two angels sitting where Jesus laid, one at the head, one at the foot. Why would John go to all that trouble to write in those details? Is it because he's just overly concerned with angelic sitting posture? Doubtful. Why does he go to the time to write in those details? Well, he writes them in because there's another place in our Bible where there's two angels. And these two angels are sitting on something and one at one end and the other at the other end. And in Exodus 25, what we see is that God, when he was giving instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant would be built, he gave them all these dimensions and sizes. And then he said, and put on top the mercy seat. And at this end, I want one cherubim, one angel. And at this end, I want another angel. And I want them to sit on the mercy seat. And in Exodus 25, 18 through 21, he says, and on the mercy seat, I will meet with my people. I, God, will speak to my people at the mercy seat. 
And what the Israelites would do with this mercy seat once a year in Leviticus 16, 14, they would sacrifice a bull and they would sprinkle the blood of the bull onto this mercy seat to make atonement for the people, to cleanse the people of their sins. And actually, a scholar, Stephen Nichols, he points out that the same word mercy seat, when we get to our New Testament, that same word is translated in the word that we get propitiation from. Propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. It was this mercy seat with one angel here and one angel there where God would meet with his people, but only when there was a wrath-removing sacrifice made by the blood of a bull to cleanse the people of their sin. So John must have just cared a lot about angelic seating posture, right? No. He's saying there's another place. Another place where there were two angels seated, one at this end and one at that end. And it was the true mercy seat of God, where the Son of God accomplished for us our salvation through the wrath-removing sacrifice of his life and through the victorious resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to be the wrath-removing sacrifice for us, to cleanse us of our sin so that we could receive mercy instead of brokenness, so that Jesus could have victory over death, so that there could be grace instead of sin. Mary saw the true and greater mercy seat of God where the sins of the world were cleansed by the resurrection of Jesus so that we could once again meet with God through the resurrection of Jesus. It is the true and great mercy seat of God where we meet with him and where he meets with us. And it is in the resurrection of Christ where we get to meet with God. And because of that, God can allow the worst of the worst and people who think they don't need grace to be brought into his family. Because of that, his kingdom can operate not based on your merit, but on his mercy. He can use you not because of your skill and your ability, but because of his great power through the Holy Spirit and his grace. You have been given a mercy, a ministry of announcing. Not because you are great, but because he is great. He has called your name to be into relationship with him, not because of you earning it, but because of his great mercy and the resurrection of Christ. Hear him call your name today. Hear him call you to a great ministry of announcing. And let us say together with one voice, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray. God, what an amazing thing to consider that the Son of God may have died on Friday, but rose to new life on Sunday. God, that he was the first fruits of all those who would one day also be resurrected. That we now, in our brokenness, in our affliction, in our struggle, long for the day where we too will be resurrected to new life in Christ. And God, we have a secure hope in that because of the resurrection. And God, thank you for the reminder that it is not based on who we are or what we've done, but is based on your mercy, the great mercy seat of Christ, where you have given us access to yourself. God, help us to embrace a ministry of announcing, to be overwhelmed by the extraordinary events of the, of the resurrection, and to simply turn like Mary and say, I have seen the Lord. God, help us not get so fixated on how and where and in what exact way we say those words, but let us be fixated on the reality that who rose from the dead and now who is saying it, someone who has been saved by the grace of God matters much more. 
I have seen the Lord. God, let us be a church that is an announcement to the world of those facts and of the relationship they point us to. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.